0: Hey Joel, sure can. Thanks so much, man. How great of a job did Joel do this morning, eh? Thanks for taking care of that for me. Appreciate it. I will be honest, it was a little sad for me to not be able to interact with you, church family, as we normally do week in and week out, but big thanks again to Joel for taking care of that for me. And I am very, very excited to be able to open up God's word with you in this way. For those who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm the youth director here at Harvest, and as Joel mentioned, we are in the middle of a series called Conversations with Jesus, looking at different interactions that Jesus Christ had throughout his time in ministry here on this earth and what we can glean and understand from those conversations and so this morning we're looking at the conversation that jesus had with a rich young ruler in matthew chapter 19 hope you've got your bibles ready for that well in 1969 a musical artist by the name of frank sinatra recorded a track that would become as many consider to be his signature song that song was called my way it's a bold declaration made by a man near the end of his career as he looks back on his life and all that he's accomplished, and he declares at the end of it, he did it all his way. Listen to these lyrics. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way yes it was my way see it's a, a bold declaration of grit determination of i can do it and nobody can stand in my way it's a song that's been famously used to celebrate triumph more Recently, it was actually the song that President Trump and his wife danced to at his inauguration ball. It's a song that's been used at funerals. As people remember, a life lived on one's own terms. See, the song is inherently humanistic. It is a worship song at the altar of pride and the human spirit. And it has become the anthem for all who would declare, I've got what it takes. See, it's no wonder so many like this song, because it's exactly what we want to hear. Inherent in each of us is the desire to be self-sufficient. It's the belief that I have what it takes and all I could ever need is found in me. It's why as soon as there's some semblance of understanding, the toddler will pass off on mommy and daddy's helpful hand to say, no, me do it. It's why the teenager rebels against the authority that they perceive to be overbearing or oppressive. It's why people protest. Because we want things on our terms and anything that threatens that is opposed. The reality is, though, our lives are fragile. And life as we know it can be upended in a matter of moments or in the matter of days. By something so small you can't even view it with the naked eye. Still, we long for control. Still, we long to hold on to the reins of our lives and be the one that determines our course in this life and in the next. It's that desire for control that brought the rich young man in Matthew 19 to Jesus. In his eyes, he had control over every aspect of this life, but he felt like he didn't have control over what happened when he left this earth. That desire for control was what motivated him to ask, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus' response turned the way that he viewed the world on its head. It forced him to realize that there is nothing in him. There is nothing in us that can resolve the greatest need of each of our lives, which is to have a restored relationship with the only one who is self-sufficient, God himself. So this morning, we're going to tackle this idea of self-sufficiency head on. May the Lord move and work in all of our hearts as we spend time in his word together. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Follow along with me as I read God's words to us this morning. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Spell before the Lord in prayer before we spend time in his word this morning. Let's pray. God Almighty, we come before you from a place of great humility, first of all, Father, to recognize our need for you today. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which you have preserved and carried forward for thousands of years to the point where it can be in our hands this morning, in this verse, in this chapter, to understand what it means to combat self-sufficiency in our lives. And God, it's not a mystery. We all struggle with this. So Father, would you help us? Would you, by your Spirit, reveal to us the areas of our lives where we are seeking to hold on to control? Would you be gracious with us, patient by your Spirit, to move us to a place of greater understanding and, Father, of repentance? And then, Lord, we pray, we ask, we plead, that you would help us as we commit to live for you, on a daily basis speak to us now from your living and active word father we pray in jesus precious name amen amen well first of all let's establish this in our lives it's a real problem when we think we're in control it's a problem when we think we are in control the reason being see this first it puts me in the place that rightfully belongs to god We jump into this conversation between Jesus and this young man, who we understand by all gospel accounts to be that he was rich. In Luke's account, we understand that he was a ruler of some kind. He had some sort of authority, but he comes to have a conversation with Jesus about salvation, specifically how one can receive eternal life. In the last message of this series, we established that there is a void that exists in every human heart that is placed there by God himself. If you missed last week's message, make sure you head to harvestberry.ca slash teaching and check it out sometime this week. But the proof text for this idea is Ecclesiastes 3.11, where we read that he, God, has put eternity into man's hearts. At the core of who we are as created human beings... There is a desire for eternity. There is a desire for something greater than this life and a sense that there is something more that comes after all of this. And that longing in our hearts, the desire to have that void filled is put there ultimately to lead us to the one who is eternal, that being God himself. And in the process, help us to understand that we need to have this problem of a thing called sin, which separates us from God destines us for an eternity without him, we need to have that problem dealt with. You see, that's the problem, that's the issue that brought this young man to Jesus. It's evident through the conversation that this young man had a knowledge of the scriptures. He was seeking to live a devout life, but even in that, he recognized that there was something missing. So in his own personal journey to receive eternal life, this young man is right to pursue the kingdom of God, but he is wrong in thinking that that's something that he can achieve on his own. You see, he tips his hand as to understanding that that's what he believes in the way that he asks the question of Jesus in verse 16. Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus responds to this question by first going right after his misconceptions. Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. God is the only good. You, young man, aren't good. The things that you even do in the name of God aren't good if God is not the starting place here. And it's evident that this young man doesn't get it. By what Jesus taught by who he was, by the miracles he performed, by how he reacted and responded to those who opposed him, it's clear Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He was so much more. And so in seeking to lead this man to a place of understanding, Jesus starts with the basic truth that God is good and no amount of good deeds can earn him the eternal life that he desires. Jesus knew that he had bought into the legalistic view that states that God's favor is only found in our performance. The law that God had given to his people, which we understand now to be the first five books of the Bible that we have, was meant to lead his people to realize that they are completely inadequate and unable to follow or fulfill all the commands that God has given to them, revealing to them their inability to save or deliver themselves. But somewhere along the line, this devastating thinking came in that it was in the doing of the commandments that someone could be saved, and not in God himself. In this young man's mind, he believed... If I could borrow a line from the poem written by William Henley called Invictus, he believed, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He believed that he was the determining factor in his salvation, that he was in control of his eternal destiny. You see, his pursuit of the kingdom of God wasn't out of a love for God, but it was out of love for himself as his salvation was seen as the next prize that he could attain. Truth is, he sat on the throne of his heart. He had the place of God in his life. So building on that, Jesus continues to say, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. See, the keeping of God's commandments is the result of a life that has been surrendered to God. It is the means by which we express our faith in and our belief in the one true God. It's not the other way around. Jesus isn't advocating for some works-based righteousness here. He's establishing the order of salvation, the order of salvation that we see clearly expressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, believing that being a good person or living with some sense of morality, or serving the less fortunate, or giving to the church or some other charitable organization, or filling a seat in a church service every once in a while, or offering art offering up a half hearted prayer to God at meal times, or even just doing the commandments of God, believing that any of these things will somehow earn you a spot in the kingdom of God or favor or blessing in this life is completely missing the mark. It's putting me and my own performance on the throne of my heart, cheapening God's grace in thinking that it is something that can be earned, leading me further away from him instead of closer to him. You know, it's amazing to me how many people grow up in the church hearing the real gospel of grace and still default into thinking that salvation is more along the lines of works. The young man in Matthew 19 grew up going to synagogue. He would have studied the scriptures in school. He knew who God was and what he called him to do. And yet he fell into the same trap that most human beings fall into. Believing that he needed to do things in order to earn the salvation or the eternal life that he desired. We have no claim to control in our lives in any aspect but especially as it pertains to the area of salvation. And to think that we do puts us and our own pride in the place of God in our lives, and then see this next, and makes me think I'm better than I actually am. It's almost sad to see as we continue in this passage, but this young man still doesn't get it after all Jesus has said. He's still focused on what he needs to do. Verse 18, which ones, Jesus, which commandments do I need to follow? So Jesus gives him a list of five, which are really just a small representation of the whole law. Verse 18, Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, to which the man replies, all these I have kept. I've done all these commandments i fulfilled all that God has called me to do. I haven't murdered anybody. I have been faithful. I haven't stolen. I haven't lied about anybody. I honor and care for my mother and father. I've loved on my neighbors. I mean, five out of five, 10 out of 10, I'm, I'm good here, right? And how often do we play this game too, don't we? Guys, you know what? Guys, I think we especially play this game. Think about it. Why, why do fish stories exist? fellas really it's to make us look better at fishing than we actually are oh man you should have seen this fish it was like this big it's beautiful it's like 15 minute fight it's awesome i'm kicking myself though i didn't have my phone with me so i couldn't show you a picture and then three months later man the fish i caught three months ago this big had to be believe me trust me this big it was massive like 25 minute fight man it was i was gassed by the end of it six months later dude you should have this That's nothing, all right? The fish I caught six months ago is the size of my seven-year-old, all right? This thing was ginormous. It took me four hours. We couldn't even get it into the boat. Why do we do that? Seem better at fishing than we actually are. Okay, maybe fishing's not your thing. What about this one? Um, You get to the end of a golf hole and you just mysteriously think or forget about all of the strokes that you actually took to get there. Yeah, yeah, mark me down for a seven. Meanwhile, you, you know, punted your ball out of the woods so that you could actually have a shot and then took three strokes to get out of a sand trap. How do we do this? It's to seem better than we actually are. We play this game with others all the time and get away with it. We wear the mask to church. We have the few verses memorized so that we could spout them off at will. We stand and sing, maybe even raise our hands in worship. When in reality we did that thing or we said those words or we thought those thoughts on the way into church. Or we hide the credit card statement and take care of it away from our spouse. So that we don't see how much money we're spending in that area or how much we're really in debt. Or we wait till everybody has gone to bed to watch that movie or to hop online. We play this game a lot. Because we want to seek to control the perception of others. And then we play this game with ourselves too, don't we? This sin issue isn't a problem. I can stop it whenever I want. I don't need accountability. I'm in control of it. It's fine. Why do I need God if everything in my life is fine right now? Listen, there's no deceiving God. He knows our hearts. He sees the areas of our lives that others don't. He knows the status of our hearts before him, and he knows the truth, and eventually that truth will come out. For the young man, that was manifest in the fact that he felt like he wasn't truly fulfilled, that there was something missing inside of him. What do I still lack, he asks Jesus. It may have been that he kept the whole law outwardly, that he did all the things that God commanded him to do, and he was viewed by others as a devout follower of God and his commandments. But inside, he wouldn't give up control. He wouldn't completely abandon himself to following Jesus because in his mind he was better off than he thought he was. The outward appearance lined up with what God called him to, but his heart was far from where it needed to be. And so Jesus gives him a really practical outline for how to deal with this in verse 21. He says, if you would be perfect, okay, if you want to be complete, totally faithful in your obedience, then do these things. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me, Jesus says just really practical. It's like a three-step process for for dealing with this whole idea of self-sufficiency. And so that got me thinking, what would we do if we sensed that we were slipping into self-sufficiency? So here's four things. This list isn't complete in any means, but maybe this will help you as you consider this this week. If you sense that your sufficiency is in money, give it away. This is low-hanging fruit based on what we see Jesus saying in God's word. And even as I wrote this out this week, I chafed against saying it because I knew that there'd be some of you there that like tune out as soon as I say it. Yes, the reality is we're called to be responsible and to steward what God has given us well, but money should not rule over us in any way. So whether it's those in need, whether it's the church, whether it's an institution serving the community, if money is becoming a problem for you, learn how to hold it with an open hand and give sacrificially. How about this one? If you sense your sufficiency is in your possessions, serve the less fortunate. If the things that you own are becoming an idol in your life and you think that based on what you have, you have some sort of claim to your own self-sufficiency, go ahead and spend some time caring for those who have less than you. It's amazing what kind of perspective you get when we leave our little bubble. If you sense your sufficiency is in your work, Look around. Honestly, if this is still an issue for you, go ahead and look at the unemployment statistics or the amount of people claiming EI right now. Our jobs, our work, while they're things that we are called to glorify the Lord in, they are evidence, they're not evidence of any good in us because the ability to work, the gifts that we have to fulfill what we're supposed to do every single day, those are gifts from God himself. The opportunity to be able to work, the health to do so is a gift from God. Don't take that for granted. How about this last one? If you sense your sufficiency is in yourself, ask for help. Certainly, we all need to be praying and asking for the Lord's help as we consider this issue of self-sufficiency, this sin in our lives. But there's something inherently humbling when you go to somebody else confessing your need and ask them for help. In doing so, we get to the core of the gospel. We all needed help. We all had a problem that we couldn't fix. And Jesus himself stepped in to help us with that. The opportunity that we give to others to help and the opportunity that we have to help others allows us to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to remember what it is that he did for us. So many other things that we could say that we would put our trust in and what we could do to deal with it. But in reality, it comes down to this. Sufficiency in anything other than Jesus Christ leads us further away from him and leads us to disappointment and discouragement every time. Because it makes you think that you're better off than you actually are. And then here's the third thing, which causes unnecessary pain and difficulty. See, all along, Jesus knew where this young man's heart was at. And in verse 21, he goes right after the foundation of all that he's built for himself. And then in verse 22, the man responds, When the young man heard all of this, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus reveals to him what he is lacking. He is holding on too tightly to what he has. Jesus knew that this man's wealth was where he found his purpose, his identity, his meaning. His money was his God. And so in calling that out, Jesus turns the man from looking at his outward obedience and turns him inward. Revealing that in reality, his obedience meant nothing because his heart was far from God. And honestly, this whole thing, this isn't rocket science. Not to discount the fact that Jesus is God, but he didn't need the Holy Spirit to figure this out. To know that this young man is trapped by legalism and a works-based understanding of how to be in relationship with God. Respectfully, you don't even need the Holy Spirit to get that. To understand that this is a basic problem for all human beings and every other religion aside from genuine gospel-centered Christianity is afflicted by the same thing. The idea that I need to earn my place before God. As Jesus calls this out in this man's heart, he reveals to him the ultimate answer for his initial question. How can I receive eternal life? Follow me, Jesus says. Abandon this earth and its passions. Lay them all aside. And follow me. But unwilling... To adhere to all that this meant. The young rich ruler walks away sorrowful. Turning his back on Jesus. As he walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says to them, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the issue that Jesus is getting at here is... Not wealthy versus non-wealthy. He's not saying that those who are wealthy can't inherit the kingdom of God and those who are poor can. We'll come back to all of this in a second. But what Jesus is saying here is that to rely on yourself and to hold desperately for control of your life brings unnecessary pain and difficulty. See, God is not interested in sharing his glory in our lives. And so he will tear down idols and do whatever he needs to do so that he stands as Lord, as the one who is in complete control of our lives. So why would we endure the hardship and the hurt and the pain that would come with that process? It's unnecessary. Jesus gives this young man a way out. God will have control in our lives. If not in this life, certainly when we see Him face to face. And in that moment, to turn your back on Him, there's no coming back from that. God will have control. But so consumed with keeping control of his own life or perceived control, the young man goes away filled with sorrow and make no mistake, this was his decision. Who we choose to depend on and who we allow control over our lives is a decision we make daily. And to, and to not surrender control over to God is to open yourself to pain and difficulty that really at the end of the day is unnecessary. Now, of course, I don't want anybody thinking that in denying ourselves and submitting to God's plan, pain and difficulty won't come. That, in fact, is not a biblically consistent idea at all. John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But when those difficulties come, not being in control is actually a freeing thing. To know that God is the one who has it and he has it all under control, and in fact, he knows how it will end, allows us to trust him even more. Self-sufficiency brings pain and difficulty easily avoided. Well, I mentioned that we'd come back to the point that Jesus made in verse 23. And back in this time, the Jews believed that to be rich meant that you were going to inherit the kingdom of God. It was almost a guarantee, not necessarily because you could buy your way into salvation, but because to be wealthy was evidence for them of God's favor. It was evidence that God was pleased with you. And so Jesus takes that perception head on and declares boldly, there is no self-made road into the kingdom of God. And to illustrate this point, Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me pause the message for a second here. Let's, Let's press the big pause button. If you ever hear anybody say that this means anything other than a literal camel and a literal eye of a needle, that's wrong. Jesus is making this point. He's using hyperbole, exaggerating, so that people can see what it is he's trying to get at, okay? Unpause, let's come back to the message here. I actually have with me a uh, stuffed camel and uh, a needle right here. If you can't see it, that's perfect. It's making my point even better, okay? So um, this stuffed camel... Not quite as big as a real camel. Unfortunately, I couldn't get one here because, you know, everything is closed. So this young camel, not, not even, this stuffed camel, not even a full-sized camel. There's no way this is getting into the eye of this needle. Okay, quite honestly, I don't know how people get thread through the eye of a needle most times, let alone, you know, a, a camel of this size, let alone a massive, you know, thousand pound animal, okay? So Jesus is exaggerating here to make the point. He's revealing to his disciples that salvation is not something that can be earned by man. Salvation that we receive is given to us sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. Doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor. Man or woman, young or old. There's no way we can earn our way into salvation. The disciples respond to all Jesus is saying. And it's evidence that the point is hitting home. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus, so, so if you're saying that those who we, by every indication, would believe are the ones who have God's favor in their life, if you're saying that they can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then who can? Verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation is not an act done by man, it's a move of God. And any attempt to make or to earn or to validate our salvation apart from him is useless It opens us up to unnecessary pain and difficulty. The greatest problem we have in our lives, which arises because of our own sin, can only be solved by God himself. You see, it's a real problem in our lives when we view ourselves as self-sufficient. In any areas of our lives, certainly, but certainly as it pertains to salvation. It's a real problem when we believe we're in control. The solution? I choose to depend entirely on the all-sufficient one. If our greatest problem can only be solved by relinquishing control and submitting to God, then all of the problems that we face in our day-to-day lives— Admittedly, admittedly lesser problems than the problem of our sin should be dealt with in the same way see the issue of self-sufficiency comes down to a heart decision will you depend entirely on god in every aspect of your life because the fact of the matter is we can do nothing apart from god's grace Even the most basic aspects of our lives are gifts from him. Every breath we take, every firing neuron in our brains, every beat of our heart is allowed to us by the one in whom all things hold together. Every day we wake up, every time the sun sets and rises, every joy-filled moment, every sorrow-filled experience, every pain-riddled night God allows. And the temptation that we face is to say that in some way I did it my way. In some way I made it happen. That in the moments of our lives when things are going well, to think that in some way that was because of something we've done, when in reality, self sufficiency is a mirage, it's an illusion. It is a lie whispered to our hearts by the evil one himself because in the moments even when we aren't giving God any thought and things do go well, that's God's grace on us. Even those who don't know and follow God receive his grace on a daily basis without even knowing it. Matthew five forty five. for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Make no mistake, sun and rain are both good things and needed for growth. God's grace allows good things for both the evil and the not evil, the just and the unjust. It's all aspects of his grace. To depend entirely on him is to recognize that. and To view even the seemingly mundane, the natural aspects of our lives like breathing as a gift from God's hand alone. To depend entirely on him is to understand that we can do nothing of significance or eternal value without his working in our lives without his strength that is available to us and supplied, meaning that he should get the glory in all things. Jesus' illustration in John chapter 15 helps us understand all of this. I am the vine, he says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That is the beginning of our dependence on God. That is the beginning of the death of self-sufficiency. A realization that there is nothing good in you and I. In fact, the only one who walked this earth who had any claim to being good took our sin and that which is bad in us so that we can experience salvation at all. So that we can be, in the eyes of God, viewed as good, righteous, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I love what Andrea Lee, a biblical counselor at a church in Atlanta, wrote in an article on Radical.net. When we realize that God is the source of every good that comes to us, and that flows from us for his kingdom... His matchless character and generosity will shine. Seeing our God-dependence every day brings deeper humility, joy, and gratitude. We can eagerly fight the illusion of self-sufficiency because we serve an all-sufficient Savior. And the incredible truth for us is that God doesn't save us and then just leave us alone in this. His power, His grace... His mercy, His presence is available to us through the Spirit to move us to a greater dependency on Him. So my question for you then is, where in your life are you not giving up control? What are you clinging desperately to? If that is anything other than complete dependence on God through Jesus Christ, you will never fill the God-shaped void in your heart You will never solve the problem of control in your life. So cling to him. Allow him to take control. Surrender your pride and tear down the idols in your life that you're worshiping. And instead, find the rest and peace and joy and freedom that you long for in our all-sufficient Savior. So if I could offer one lyric change suggestion to Mr. Sinatra, it would probably go something like this. For what is a man? What has he got? If not Christ himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels, but to say the words of one who kneels. The record shows he took my blows. So I did it his way. Yes, it was his way. Let me pray for us. Father, these are challenging things to consider. We've come face to face today with our pride. Which far too often rears its ugly head in our lives and takes us down a path of self-sufficiency. Of believing in some way the things that we have in our lives were earned, were deserved. God, we recognize in this moment, based on what we've seen from your word, We are deserving of nothing good in this life. Certainly, God, we are deserving of nothing good in the next life. And yet you, out of your mercy and grace and love for us, made a way. Made a way that we could experience those good things. You have poured out your grace in our lives in so many different ways. We can't even fathom them all on a daily basis. Father, we help. We pray that you would help us to have eyes to see those things. To at the beginning of every day, run to you. To in the moments of darkness and despair, run to you and surrender control. God, would that be something that we do as our feet hit the floor in the morning? Surrender control of anything and everything that may come our way to you. And God, we surrender control of our eternal life to you as well. Recognizing that to take control of that on our own leads to eternal death and separation from you. So Father, I pray for those here this morning who are beaten down and discouraged by problems and difficulties of life, by pain inflicted by others by stress and anxiety with the situations that we find ourselves in now, Father, would they surrender to you, control over all of it? They trust in you to know that you are moving and working in phenomenal ways and your plans are higher and better than ours. God, I pray for those here who are rebellious and who are claiming to know and love you, but in areas of their lives are holding the reins so tightly. Challenge them by your spirit, I pray. Rebuke them and move them to a place of greater obedience so that more glory can be brought to your name, Father, we pray. And God, I pray for those who are tuning in, maybe for the first few times. Maybe this is their first time. God, who are living with control, perceived control over their entire life. God, would you break down that idea? Would you help them to understand that they are in desperate need of you? We aren't promised tomorrow. The moment that we see you face to face is the moment that the decision is made. So, Father, would they run to you? Would they seek salvation and forgiveness and grace and mercy to the full in your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice for us? Thank you that he took our blows to make a way so we can live your way thank you for this time and for hearing this prayer, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.